Hello, and welcome back to the Analytive Podcast. Back in 2013, northern Colorado, which is where I live, was hit with massive, massive flooding. Experts called it a 500-year flood. In fact, Estes Park, which is only about 45 minutes from where I live right now, was virtually impossible to get into or out of. Getting people out of Estes was the largest airlift via helicopter actually since Hurricane Katrina. And in the middle of all of this chaos, serving and making a difference was this one organization, Serve 6-8. That's how I first got connected with them. Serve 6-8 is born out of a collection of local churches in northern Colorado. They take unique approaches to solve problems using creative solutions. Um, One of my favorite stories that should have been in this interview but actually happened after we'd stopped recording is about a widow here in town who is battling cancer. For that reason and a variety of other reasons, she is unable to make a real income, right? It's hard to hard to go to a job every single day when you're battling cancer. Um, and traditional support structures didn't provide the level of help she needed. Serve 6-8 went out and partnered with a bunch of local businesses and came up with a solution. Instead of just giving her money to live on, they helped her finish her basement, including installing both a bathroom and a kitchenette that she can run out. That rental is currently providing enough income for her to live off of. I've been involved uh, with Serve 6A officially and unofficially for many years and love the organization and love the work they do. If you're looking to be inspired by creative solutions to community problems, you will love this interview. So without further ado, here's my interview with the founder and the executive director of Serve 6A, Mike Walker. This is Tyler, and you are listening to the Analytive Podcast. Well, Mike, thank you for being willing to come on the Analytive Podcast and chat with me today. Thanks, Tyler. I appreciate it. I love talking about what I do and uh, love our history together. Yeah. So for people who don't know, can you give you know the elevator pitch of mm-hmm. Serve 6-8 uh, and what you guys do here in the Northern Colorado community? Yeah, I, I think Serve 6-8, the quickest way to describe it, it's a culmination of my, my life experiences, not only from my profession, but even from some of my um, business interests that I've had in the past. I uh, spent most of my life in the police uh, officer realm. I was in that realm for 14 years. Uh, but then after that, I, I did a series of things in the business world. And I think that for me, Serve 6 is a combination of all those experiences coming together and learning how to take um, what we've done in this world and leverage it forward. So um, the, the concept of being um, seeking justice, mercy, compassion for others is a really big deal at Sir 6 8 right? We're working with people every day from the community who are um, suffering crisis, feel isolated, uh, are in poverty. And so the, 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 that compassion element is important. The business mind, uh, however, from the things I've done, like building homes and owning a franchise business, uh, is equally important in my in this journey because it teaches me a lot about engaging people um, for the long-term sustainability of, like, how do you take care of people in a way mm-hmm. that actually isn't just um, one-dimensional? Right. Because I think one-dimensional care is, is great in the moment. But really what we're after is people to be um, – to feel reconnected, to feel less isolated, and ultimately to be – to have a lot of restoration reconciliation, and then be, you know, be part of a functioning and viable and thriving community. So I think that you don't get that from a singular approach. I think there's a lot of elements that my background tell me are important because people are inherently complex. Right. We're, we're, we're body, mind, and spirit. Therefore, you got to look after a lot of different things when, when you're working with people. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's the quickest snapshot uh, of like my background and how it intersects Sir Six Eight. So, and then for someone who maybe isn't familiar with some of the services Serve mm-hmm. Six Eight offers, right? So that's like the big vision, and I, I love that because it is taking care of the whole person, right? Helping people grow in you know physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and, and kind of all those components. But what are the I guess day to day you know operations like? What happens with Serve Six Eight or, or in Serve Six Eight as a nonprofit? Like, what are the things that are happening? Yeah, you know, practically, yeah. So let's land the plane. Um, we know we're looking after the whole person, and we're looking after engaging whole segments of population in that. So but how does that work? Well, we run a resource center here in, the, in Fort Collins, Colorado, and it's kind of, I call it the front porch 
of, ben- of the benevolent side of multiple church partners. So every church and every community has a stance where they want to care for people and do so in a way that brings restoration, hope, and healing. Mm-hmm. Well, um, as in, in Colorado right now, there, there are a lot of people who aren't affiliated at any level with the church, but that, that hope and healing and that restoration still needs to happen. So the Resource Center is an is a expression of, hey, what if we open this thing together? We're 30 church partners. That's what Sir 6 is. Thousands of volunteers, 30 church partners. What if we open a place where people can come from the community who have practical needs? We can hear those needs. We can work with them uh, in, in an empowering kind of way. And then we can offer them practical services that help them with these issues, as long as look after long-term uh, holistic issues and relationship connections. So uh, when they're in here, we, ha- we have somebody meet with them, they hear their story, and then together we start empowering them to make a plan towards, hey, what would it look like to get out of this situation? We offer food, uh, clothing, mm-hmm. employment uh, opportunities, as well as a legal consultation, budget work, help at Thanksgiving, Christmas, and auto care for folks, um, just to name a few. Practical projects or something we'll do. I mean, I think the idea of Aid is find out what's going on with the person and figure out if there's a resource in one of our church partners that would actually practically help them with that need. So it shows up in a lot of ways, but those are the main buckets. Gotcha. So a lot of it is about actually finding the needs that people have and helping serve mm-hmm. them rather than being like, oh, here, we have all these resources available, like come, you know, come take. And, and that's one of the things I've appreciated about Serve 6 Aid is it tries to meet people where they are. If it's auto care, it's like, oh, do we know a mechanic, right? Or have access. Mm-hmm. And because of the church network that you guys have built, you know, we a lot of times have those people available who are willing to donate time or effort or energy or resources or whatever. That's a great point. Um, yeah, you're right. It's it's kind of not. We didn't build this thing and say, "Here's what we have. Uh, let's put let's make it fit for you." We, we're we're problem solving people, so it's like, "Hey, let's hear the problem, and then let's see if we can bend resources around that problem to meet it." So, I, I think that's a a great um, distinction of our model. Yeah. So then I want to know more about your background because you know we've worked together for a few years, but I don't actually know a ton about um, how you ended up in Serve Six Eight. I know you were in law enforcement. So I guess, you know, wherever you think practical, I'd love to sort of rewind the tape on Mike. And, you know, how did you end up here? Like mm. professionally, personally, spiritually, kind of whatever direction you want to take that. But I would love to sort of know a little bit more about your background. Yeah. Um, man, I'd love to share this part about my journey. Uh, in many ways, I'm, I'm very much the same person right now as I was when I was younger. But, there's, but yet there's a lot that's different inside me. So I grew up in the Northern Virginia area, the D.C. suburbs. And so I went to school out there. My family's there. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a very uh, uh, broken home. So a lot of, I actually had a lot of different, there's five siblings, but we have three different dads, two different moms. Mm. So we're a blended family. Um, they're like the poster child of the blended family concept. But it was family. So for us, um, my, my idea of family has always been wrapped around this idea that you don't actually have to be biologically related to be family. It's, it's an association and a willingness to connect that way. Well, when I went to school, I went to Virginia Tech, and I was a political science major. My, my purpose originally was to be a lawyer. I liked, to, I liked arguing. I, I, I like debate. And as a young man, I, I certainly loved debating and arguing the merits of the Christian faith with Christians. I, I wasn't a believer uh, mm-hmm. in Jesus, uh, and I was pretty antagonistic to this idea of organized religion. Uh, I love history, so I was a history minor. So, um, I, you know, and as every young person, uh, I was, I thought I was much smarter than I really was. Sure. So I, I had a lot of, I had a lot of high regard for what I thought, what I knew, right. but um, that, that, the piece of me that really made me tick was is very interested in looking after um, and being protector of people. I really felt like this responsibility and this call to get out there and use my my the, the life I've been given to um, defend the rights of the the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden. So uh, I remember really strongly feeling in, in college I needed to do something practical, and so I wind up w- wind up uh, in the fire department, and I wound up being a fire marshal, and. Okay. That kind of what was the door that opened into law enforcement. So 
I, I realized uh, as I got into that as a graduate of college, it really scratched that itch. Like, hey, I can go out there and make a difference in the world. I'm a political science major. You know, I understand, I think, some of the issues surrounding um, human beings and, 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 and the realities of our existence, the poverty issues that we face, issues around race, uh, around economic um, issues. So I'm like, all right, let's do something practical. Sure. So the problem with that is I found out that people are more complex than I think the, the textbooks would have led <laughs> me to believe. Uh, I mean, the reality is brokenness it has a myriad of issues. And I found myself at a place um, thinking I'm going to go do my best and just really recognizing my best actually didn't make much of an impact. I was powerless as a human being and as a single person to help anyone with the deeper issues in their life. Mm-hmm. That was a real humbling place to find myself. And I tell this story a lot, but it really culminated one day. I'm in a courtroom in Virginia uh, on a sentencing hearing for a young man. I had. Um, and were you, just to be clear, you were a police officer by police this Police officer point. at this okay. time. I was probably about 26 years old. And um, this young man, I, I had arrested him for crack cocaine charges. And we had had a lot of conversations on the way to the jail. And he was just one of those curious people where you just you didn't know why he was in the situation he was in. At a sensing hearing, he got about two to three years. And he came up to me, and he actually hugged me, and he thanked me. And this was a real pivotal moment in my life. He thanked me for putting him in jail because he felt like that was the only way he could get his freedom back. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's just a messed up paradigm. In right. order to get freedom, you have to give up your freedom. Like, kind of all my thoughts and preconceptions about what I want to do kind of came crashing down. And so it was um, really soon after that that I, I was actually uh, embarked on a relationship with Jesus myself. I was introduced to the Left Behind books by a friend and heard that, that gospel message for the very first time. And it opened my eyes to the real justice. Because as a justice person, the gospel speaks justice to me. Sure. It's like, it's, it my interest is in human beings, and it hasn't changed. It's just like, what's, what's the best thing for human beings to gain hope, freedom? And I realized that the path that I was on was, uh, was one way, but this path of the gospel, that was a real way. Like, it could help with today. And it, it made an immediate impact in my mind, in my heart. Um, I, I, it softened me in ways I was surprised. It made me more compassionate for people. And, and so it was, I, I, I wanted to move into Fort Collins, Colorado, in 1999, so I've been out here for 20 years to so work what, for the... So what brought you out here then? Um, specifically, I came here to work for the Fort Collins Police Department. Okay. So uh, my wife, is. Uh, she grew up in Wyoming, and so in some ways we were trying to come back closer to home for her. And I, I looked around and I applied to Fort Collins because that was as close to Wyoming as I wanted to live. Sure. <laughs> I understand <laughs> I, that. I'm from Virginia. It's like there are no people in Wyoming. It was culture shock for me. Uh, I thought Fort Collins, is, uh, that's a compromise. So I, I specifically came here to work for the department. And uh, while here, I wound up working in a problem-solving unit. And this is a really pivotal moment in my life. Um, I, I, I learned that I like to solve problems, complex problems. So I wound up in this specialty unit, and their task was to solve some of the most complex problems the city had. So in the early 2000s, I was stationed in downtown Fort Collins, and I worked on issues of poverty and homelessness and out-of-control behavior that, the, that and, and kind of started building broad coalitions of people and stakeholders to address systemic issues. And I found out, man, I really like this. Mm-hmm. I love thinking deeply about solving complex problems. And what was cool about that role is I got to invite a lot of people to join me. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where some of these ideas of engaging people and businesses now uh, started then. I recognized the best way to create solutions was to invite as many people to the table as possible and get their perspective and get their feedback. And more importantly, to use the platforms they had to leverage change. Gotcha. So when you say and you elaborated a little bit, but I'd love to know more. So you got involved with the Fort Collins Special Unit, I guess, solving problems. Like, what, what, what does that mean? I guess, what does that look like from uh, from a, a practical standpoint? Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, was it homeless problems? Was it like drug problems? Like, what were the type of problems? Because I think normally, if someone from the outside, you think about law enforcement, it seems pretty mm-hmm. cut and dry. Of like, well, you just make sure no one's doing anything bad. Like, uh, you, I don't. I guess, think as strategically about it. So I'd love mm-hmm. for you to elaborate a little bit on what that looked like. Yeah, so in that time frame in Fort Collins, there was an incredible uptick in crime in the uh, the whole downtown area of the city. 
And there was a there was a premise being floated. In the early 2000s, we were seeing a rise in homelessness, and there was there was a desire, I think maybe even a faulty attempt to say the level of homelessness rising equaled a higher crime rate. Mm-hmm. And the question becomes, if you're going to have an intelligent response to any issue, you got to de- uh, you got to determine what the underlying issue was. So there was a the first thing I was asked to do was was determine, hey, where are these pressure points of crime rising really coming from? Is the proposition that higher rates of homeless folks living in downtown led to higher crime, is that an accurate assessment? Because if so, we need to do some different enforcement and some different policy changes and some different support things for homeless populations. Gotcha. If, however... Um, those two really aren't correlated pro- the right way, then if we designed a whole system around a singular approach on that, we would miss the mark. Well, right. it turns out when you really dove in, there were two things happening. There was a daytime issue of folks who were homeless and, and, and the tension points that arose in the businesses. And there was a nighttime issue of um, Fort Collins has t- at that point in the early 2000s had 10,000 bar seats in a one square mile area. So wow. what was happening is there was a lot of behavior associated with, with overconsumption of alcohol and 10,000 people in downtown being released when the bars closed at 2 p.m. And a lot of vandalism and a lot of other 2 things. 2 a.m. 2 a.m., okay. sorry. Good, yeah, 2 a.m. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of, that was actually, there's, so there's a lot of things happening at night that were being blamed on uh, the homeless population. And we were able to really accurately describe in detail what those things were. What was an issue and what policy changes needed to happen to support and serve the homeless and protect the citizens of the city? But what, what, did, what did we need to do with the behavior at, at nighttime to bring the pressure points of crime down as well? Sure. So that's, from a problem solver standpoint, that's the kind of stuff I would do. I'd get in there, I would study it, I would go out, I'd spend evenings out, I would spend days looking at all the issues, talking to stakeholders, pulling data, and that's ultimately, we just, so we had a two-pronged approach. How do we address the issues at nighttime and bring those under control? How do we help support the, the business owners, the residents, and the homeless population during the day to bring peace? So a lot of peace came just by understanding what was really happening. Sure. When people, fear, fear tells us a lot of stuff. Fear drives us when we don't know. Hmm. So if, if we're fearful of a, a group of people because we feel they're responsible for a lot of stuff, when you detangle that, that kind of takes a lot of that stigma and fear away. Right, gotcha. Yeah, so we were able to work some 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 great stuff with the homeless population, um, not only to support them more, but to also strengthen some ordinances and laws that provided safety to the business owners as well. In addition, at night, we, we wind up implementing some, some more aggressive patrol tactics and some more instrumental um, work with the bar owners themselves and wind up bringing crime down 33%. Wow, yeah. So that was a real measured result. So problem solvers do stuff like that. They have propositions. It's like a scientist, you know. Yeah. What's my theory? How do I test it? What do I implement? And then how do I measure it? Mm-hmm. And, and so that type of thinking obviously really patterned me – for my work later on with Sir Six Eight, right? Yeah. So then, what's the? So let's move on to that transition. So you're you're out here in Fort Collins. Mm-hmm. You you know are able to help you and your team basically your department. You know, drop crime by thirty three percent. So when did uh, I guess the the bug to either get involved in maybe like Sir Six as a nonprofit or at least to move on from the police mm-hmm. work? What did that look like then for you? Well, once it was the first time in my life when I was in the problem solving unit that I looked at the skill set that I had as a as a police officer and problem solver, and I thought this is actually marketable. Uh, one of the cool things I got to do was I got to meet with the folks who had developed the 16th Street Mall concept in Denver, mm-hmm. Pearl Street, and Boulder, and I realized like this skill set of being a problem solver translated well past law enforcement, sure. and so it kind of created this little entrepreneurial bug in me. I wanted to do more problem solving. Well, in the police department, when you get when it's time and they feel you're worthy, they promote you. But unlike a lot of businesses, they don't promote you and, and necessarily put you in your strengths. you got to go back to the bottom of the line. Mm-hmm. So I, I got promoted and I got moved out of the problem-solving unit. And now I'm back on the street in the least senior position. And now I'm back to doing what I call real micro work. And I missed being involved with all the stakeholders and the, in, in, in the larger problem scales. I was like, I need to do more of that. And I saw business as an opportunity. 
So uh, I wind up being getting involved with a, a young man who was building homes for people, and I had a customer service skill set that I kind of started to offer. So next thing you know, I'm working off hours helping him build homes for people. And I thought, and over time, I learned how to do that process. I have my own building company. Okay. So I was working in the police department and building custom homes for people. Hmm. And so did that for like two years. And it just got to the point where I'm like, gosh, I feel like you could do more with this platform and the business world. I think, I think that I, it's time for me to leave the law enforcement one behind and look forward. So I did. I wound up running a, a business, um, building homes, opening a, a franchise business in, in the Denver area, and uh, just in time for the economy to completely collapse in 2008. Yes, yes. <laughs> so my timing is impeccable. Uh, but, you know, so w- once that happened, I put a that really cooled down my business work I was doing, and it kind of brought to an end the building side. And it kind of left me in this soul-searching quest saying, okay, what is it that I want to do with my life? What is it that I love? What, is, what, what are my skills? What can I add? How can I add value to people? And so um, in that journey, I wind up giving a lot of my time to my local church uh, here in Fort Collins. And they kind of started asking me to assess, like, hey, you're, what, what would it look like if you came in and looked over our benevolence process, our care for the poor process? Do an assessment. So here I was, back assessing issues that, you know, affected people but were really macro. I enjoyed it. So I'm starting to do that work, and then they start pulling on me to be involved with more and just felt the call to be doing, to be present with that all the time. So that ultimately led to me um, taking over a local missions pastor role at my local church and kind of overseeing issues of care for people in the congregation and poverty issues in the community. So Hmm. kind of brought all that stuff together. And a lot of it was done around, it's not just working with people, which I was very comfortable with, but there was a lot of small projects of construction experience, which is really kind of odd combo. Mm -hmm. So I knew how to do that kind of work. So it's like, how do I help a widow with a small project or a single mom? Um, Those skill sets all kind of came floating out of the past and married together in that moment where it's like, yeah, my law enforcement, my building background all kind of came in the, the running a business because that, 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 movement called Sur 68, which began in 2012, wound up being caught up in a lot of um, local disaster response mm-hmm. in our community over the next three years. And because of that work, it propelled us from being a small movement inside one church to being a multi-church and, and thousands of people strong movement. Uh, and that's where the entrepreneurial thing started to kick back in. Next thing you know, I'm a founder of a nonprofit. And so running a nonprofit is... Uh, has a lot of similarities to running a business. Sure. So I was kind of taking all those skill sets, and that kind of catches you up to, to, to that moment where, hey, we founded this thing called Sur 68. Next thing you know, we're, 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 we're doing some problem solving on how we're caring for people in the community, implementing all that for 30 churches and thousands of volunteers. Yeah, and I think a couple of things that really stick out to me is, and you even said it directly, is your unique skill sets that had built up over time from, you know, poli-sci and history, right, an understanding Mm -hmm. of just people in general to, you know, emergency management on the fire and the police, you know, and then also the the problem solving combined with the building. Like, you have a very, I guess, unique sort of talent stack that, Mm -hmm. you know, to run an organization like Serve 68 takes um, a lot of those skills that I think you've been uniquely positioned, right, over over your career um, to actually to actually have. Yeah, and it's funny because uh, you know it is unique, but it but it's but everyone has a unique set of skills too, right? And I think that's the lesson for that I've I learned from is like God, God used the skills I had to do something tangible for churches and others, but I'm not alone in that. Mm-hmm. You have unique skill sets from your experiences and your background, sure. And the people all around us have that, and and when properly um, motivated and released and equipped, right, the the good they can do is is exponential. Yeah. 
And because I, I got involved, I think I first heard of Serve Six Eight and you guys, and really the first time I volunteered was in 2013. So it would have been what I guess a year after you guys started yeah. um, with the floods that we had here in northern Colorado. I mean, Estes Park was completely you know cut off. There was all kinds of basements flooded and just some you know some real damage to property and people who didn't think they needed flood insurance, you know, who are maybe lower income and uh, just being able to go in and, and help those people, you know, clean mm-hmm. out, you know, the, their basement and power wash it down so that they don't have to like evacuate their house and cause of mold. Like, and so that was actually my first, uh, I guess, engagement, if you will, was I heard about some of the work Serve 68 was doing and, and got to jump on board and, um, still, uh, look very fondly on some of the opportunities I had during that time and really grateful for the work that Serve 68 did in the community and then that I was able to also play a very small part in that. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny because there are a lot of people who did just that, but what stands out in my memory of me of, of your, the first time you, you ever really hit my radar is when you showed up at our resource center and you had the, a skill set when you had this business entrepreneurial mind and you wanted to use that to benefit people who um, were struggling and needed an opportunity to invest in themselves. Mm. And that was the, so uh, that's my first memory sure. of you swimming into the larger, and that's kind of what we rely on for six eight people, t- you know, kind of touching and tasting and being involved at some level and that kind of activating a larger um, sense of, of opportunity and responsibility. And, and, and so it must've been that way for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because next thing you know, you're saying, Hey, I've got this particular program and this skill set that I think would be beneficial. W- what would it look like? Right. All right. And we dreamed a little bit and you, you kind of put your hand to the plow and you started helping and consistently you helped us out in that way for a, at least a couple, two or three years. Yeah. And so uh, to be more more specific for folks listening, I got involved because I was just looking for a way to serve. Um, you know, I'd heard, I think it was Bob Goff, I heard a quote, you know, where he talked about, like, if you love Jesus, mm-hmm. but you don't know any poor, or if you're serving Jesus, but you're not serving poor people, are you serving Jesus, mm-hmm. basically? And I was at a time in my life where that sort of hit me between the eyes in the sense of, like, man, like, I know all these, you know, people, and I know, uh, you know, quote-unquote poor college students, but I didn't know true mm-hmm. poor people, right? Um, and so, yeah, so I got to come in and help a lot of people just with resumes and job skills and interview skills, and um, which is, again, one of the things I loved about Service Exit is it wasn't just like, oh, here's some food, good luck, but you guys were willing to sort of take a chance on folks and say, how can we help you change your life, right, through um, through skills, mm-hmm. through, um, you know, income, right? I mean, because if you don't have an income in our society, I mean, it's almost impossible to live, a, you know, a meaningful life in any way. You know, you have to survive. You have to be able to at least fo- afford food and a place to live, right? Yeah, I do re- I remember, you know, as a bedevilist pastor, this is kind of the paradigm that it's a tired old one, by the way, and I, and I, I, I didn't ever like it, and I've, I've made sure it's no longer around our organization. We felt like everyone who was in crisis needed our help budgeting. Mm. Um, like, and, and I think that's just a misunderstanding of some of the dynamics of what puts people in crisis. Hmm. There's a certain element of people who have been given much and, and, and do, do a good job managing it. But the people you're talking about, the people you are meeting with, no matter how, t- how many ways you split zero, right. if you're not making money, right. you, you can budget it all day long. Sure. Uh, and, and, and instead of putting it into a shame-based situation where you're telling them how inappropriately they're spending the resource they don't have. Instead, you're saying, do you know the skills that you do have? Do you know the talents that God's giving you that you could build on? You're giving them different view of themselves. The world's plenty good at telling people where they fail. Mm -hmm. And I think that paradigm leads to constant reminder and maybe people checking out sometimes. So the model you're describing from our perspective that we worked on together was this idea of what if we looked at people the way that our creator looks at people and said, I created you special and every person has, has, has value to add, mm-hmm. not only to themselves, but to others and society in general. So what if we unlocked that potential with them, right? Yeah. That's really the, 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 the message of the gospel. It's, it's reconciling people, not only to God through Jesus, but reconciling them to who they were actually meant to be. Right. Powerful difference maker, and, and, and the, here's their delineator. We can help anybody who walks in the door, but the real question is, are they willing to engage their issue? Right. 
Yeah, we can't. We have no power to change people's lives, and we have no power to make why people's lives better or different and through our own actions, right? We we all we do is we we can help and we provide opportunities. We can let we can use the stuff we have for the benefit of others. But the delineator really is: will somebody look at themselves and say, "I want to invest in myself"? Yeah, and that's what we're looking for at Sir Six Eight. That change, turning that upside down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you did a good job describing that a minute ago. Yeah, and that, I mean, I saw that so many times where, you know, if people wanted help, you know, yeah, you have to show up. You have mm-hmm. to, you know, put your effort into it. Um, you know, and if people weren't willing to do that, no matter how great of advice, you know, any of the staff could give or whatever, like, it wasn't going to have an impact. They had to be willing and ready to change and be willing to accept help and then... Mm-hmm. But we also got to see lots of stories where people did and, you know, through connections, through local churches or whatever, they ended up with jobs, almost some of them almost immediately, like, you know, some of them over time. Like we were able to just help a lot of um, people, you know, gracefully that mm-hmm. way. So, yeah, you know, one of the one of the paradigms that, you know, I, I've learned, too, along the way, OK, you had the paradigm like you can't split zero and make it any more than zero. Right. Well, there's also this this idea uh, that. Compassion ministry is really rule-based. So resources limited, so you make a lot of rules. Um, and, and see what, and so you instead of, um, instead of letting people be the decider of what they're going to engage, we decide for them. Does Can that make sense? Can you elaborate? No. I, yeah. I, I'm not trying so to So, for example, it, when you work a ministry like Sir 6-8, we see 1,000 families a month okay. through the ministry. Um, and we'll see about a thousand families a year that we relationally connect to, and they're talking about their crisis. Well, they come in and they they have very they they they're, they're kind of managing their situation. They say, "I have this issue, and I need help with this, this, and this." And maybe those things are things like, "I need a hotel room," or "I need help with f- certain fees that are late fees or whatever." But most benevolent, compassion type ministries actually start by drafting a series of rules that say, "We'll help with certain things." Mm-hmm. But we won't help with, and there's always a laundry list of those, hotels, late fees, certain types of bills. It's almost like we want to decide for others what's a worthy help, helping cause, and we want to choose for others when we'll help instead of letting them engage. Sure. So we broke down all the rules. When people come in, we, we hear exactly what they need. And what, kind of like I used to do the problem solving for the city, you got to know the needs first. Then you can bring the resources to the table. Gotcha. So we try not to have a lot of rules about what we will or won't help with. Here's our biggest one. Are you going to be involved in helping yourself? Mm. That, that's the thing. Because people ask me all the time, so what are the criteria? When people come in, do they need to bring their income statements, their utility bills to prove where they live? I don't, none of that. Mm. We don't ask for any of that information. We do get to it many times with budgeting and all that, but it's a voluntary conversation. It's always a free will conversation people enter into because they recognize that the power to help themselves and the, and the energy they put into this is the energy they're going to get out. Right. I like that a lot more, Tyler, than saying, like, um, we'll help with three different things. We'll help with the utility bill. Maybe we'll help with rent. And maybe we'll help over here with transportation costs. Mm-hmm. But everything else you come to us with, sorry. Right. No, it's like, what if we did something more? creative and more explosive than that. Yeah, and it's much more nuanced, you know, because yeah. everyone's situation is unique. Maybe they don't need help with rent, but, you know, they decided to pay rent this month, but now they're struggling with, yeah, yeah, another bill. Totally, and they often don't know. The reality is they come to you saying, I need help with this, but when you really get in a situation, they're, they're seeing something different than what you see when you look at it from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. Maybe actually rent is not really their issue. It's underemployment. They're accepting the paradigm that they have to be underemployed right? and only can make X amount of dollars per hour. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the quickest way to solve people's problems isn't to say, let's keep moving the limited money you have around. Let's right. have you make more money. Yes. yes. <laughs> so that is a powerful shift in paradigm, which is one of the ones you began to help us with. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I've heard someone say, you know, money doesn't solve all your problems, but it can solve all your money problems, yeah. you know, and I think that's very true, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, like it doesn't take care of the spiritual and, you mm-hmm. know, mental and, and all that. But if you can, you know, make three, four, five, six, ten more dollars an hour than you were making before, you know, and know how to manage that at least moderately well, 
I mean, that can be uh, life-changing. Yeah, I mean, the reality is we see a lot of people in crisis, um, and, and only a small percentage of them are in crisis because of character issues mm-hmm. or, or, or poor choices they've made. Uh, we Granted, so let me explain that a little further. Plenty of people make difficult and tough decisions that maybe we, you and I wouldn't make, though we also aren't in their position. Sure. But so the reality is the true factor is pressing them down in the moment is a lack of resource, bottom line. Right. Uh, only a handful of people we see would say, well, you made that choice and that's led to all these other painful consequences. So you're, it's natural that you're in this particular situation. So you're right on the money when you say, if we could provide extra money to you right now, if you had a different resourcing trail, mm-hmm. would your life look differently right away? Absolutely. Right. You bet. And it's the first place we ought to be looking if we really want to help people. I mean, if we really want to help people, we care about them. Don't we care about the outcomes of their life? Don't we care about the fact that they have enough mm-hmm. for their family, for their kids? Don't we want them to flourish the way we want ourselves to flourish? Sure. That's kind of our viewpoint. Yeah. So then from where you sit, you know, at sort of this 30,000 foot view of, you know, being involved with churches, being involved with community leaders, both on the nonprofit side and the governmental side, um, and then businesses, I think, you know, looking at all of that, I'd love to get your thoughts on the way that I guess business, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a broad term, but local businesses, local entrepreneurs, marketers, you know, it's going to be people. But if people are seeing crises in their community like homelessness mm. or lack of resources what are some ways maybe they're in a community where a serve six eight doesn't exist as such but what are some small ways that business owners entrepreneurs um can step up and say you know i want to make a small difference right yeah maybe i write a check for you know five ten fifty hundred thousand dollars a year mm. but i want to do something more meaningful than that what are some ways that businesses can can engage with the community well, first, I think that um, business owners and entrepreneurs have to realize that they hold more answers to those problems than, than most um, power alleviators would, would, would say is true. So what I, what I mean by that is over the, the, since 1933 in the New Deal in the United States where a lot of the way we approach caring for our neighbors has shifted from a, a truly um, organic feel where communities are caring for communities, it's, it's become a bit of an industry. So, um, so yet what you now have are professional power alleviators, social workers, and government agencies and specialized nonprofits. And so a lot of the messaging is they're the experts, and therefore they're going to give us the, the, the best practices, and business owners can connect to that by writing a check. Right. Um, there is some value to that. But I would say to this, the business owners, there's more value in connecting to what's in the business owner and entrepreneur's mind and what they've learned from what their business model has taught them because that's the type of stuff that actually can bring liberation to people. It's not enough just to give people things. We just discussed that. Like the mission of Service Succeed is to meet a practical need right now but also to provide an opportunity and platform for people to be more than that and business owners have have more keys to that castle than they realize for a couple of things. Yes, business owners immediately can make an impact by using their whatever platform they have. They can use it to to do things like at Christmas, for example, in, in Fort Collins, we do a big Christmas ministry called Adopt-A-Family. And 200-plus businesses host giving trees. A really cool way for them to use their business platform um, to help others. They put a, a Christmas tree with little ornaments on it in their business. Those ornaments are presents for specific kids, and customers go buy those and bring them back to the tree. Cost the business owner nothing, but they, it's it's a beautiful uh, illustration of just being open every day. Yeah, in fact, the they benefit often because just goodwill. From Absolutely, the customers who are willing to come back into the business and bring you know, so it's a win-win. Truly. And why wouldn't we give them the chance to do that? Just by being open as a business owner, you can help other people. I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's like the entry-level way. But then there's things like drives. So, like, what's happening in your community right now? Is it is it holiday season? Are there issues for families that people are lacking resource? Is it a clothing in the winter, you know, with coats? Is it is it turkeys at Thanksgiving? Sure. Uh, what is it backpacks for back to school? How can you use your business as a platform to kind of create some mobilization, some resourcing for families? I think that... There's more than one way, um, but when it comes to writing the check, here's probably one of the most powerful things I'll say uh, from my perspective. 
there is more than one way to approach a problem in a community. And sometimes we get a little focused on one way. So one of the most powerful things businesses can do when they write that check is be thoughtful about what outcomes they're looking for. So if they believe uh, in their heart, uh, their mission and their value set says, hey, people matter, and we want to see people thrive, not just survive. So what would it look like to go and and do some research and find alternative uh, ideas and and organizations in a community that might raise up a second or third tier strategy to help people? If you're worried about people in poverty, there's people in homelessness, but then there's a whole swath of people that aren't there yet. Right. And many times they're underrepresented with the resources. Mm. So uh, as a business owner, I'd encourage you to take a look around your community. Look at people from a zero to 100% kind of look at the problems and say, we need to invest in a variety of solutions that bring a variety of results. So where would it best fit your mission set and value set to spend that money? That's mm. a, so checks can be powerful especially if you're giving to, or, to organizations that are going to provide a, a, uh, an alternative or a second uh, opportunity for families. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Talk a little bit about the – you mentioned tiers. Like mm-hmm. what did you – can you define a little bit what you mean by oh, tiers? Yeah. yeah. So um, when you look at people's income level in the community and their sustainability, that's a zero to 100% kind of a conversation. Are you 0% sustainable or are you 100? So 0% means I have no income, I'm completely broke, like no way to pay for anything. 100 is, okay, I have a, a good enough job, I can pay all my mm-hmm. bills, life is good. Exactly. Um, it, they, in what we call that in the business is um, area median income. It's actually a term that's used by poverty alleviation organizations, and they say, okay, hey, Tyler, um, where's your family fall on that spectrum? In Fort Collins right now, for example, for a family of four to be 100% sustainable to meet their needs to have housing, transportation, medical costs covered, all that, a family of four needs to make $80,000 a year hmm. to be 100% sustainable. Uh, and so what you, you, that's what happens. Now, um, I don't know about you, but I don't know, uh, everyone I know doesn't fit into that. So you have families that fall all over that spectrum. Sure. Families that are making 50, 40, 60. And that means that they're going to struggle to make ends meet in certain areas. So 0% being, I don't have any income, I don't have any resource, I don't even probably have shelter and all that. It's those families that are in that 42000 to $65,000 range in our area in particular that are struggling because they do have jobs. They are out working. They're doing their best. Housing costs and other associated costs are high enough, though, that it eats into their dollar. Mm-hmm. And whenever something happens in their life unforeseen, they tend, to have, um, they tend not to have any reserves. And so the pressure point becomes, I pay that bill for the doctor, but now I don't have rent. Right. And so that starts a series of catastrophic events that kind of leads to what we call falling off the cliff. So there, that's the group of people that I think every business owner might have more opportunity to invest in than they realize. Mm-hmm. So at SIR at 6 8, we have this thing called the um, Family Assistance Fund. And it's, it's specifically designed to be a, a prevention fund for families to keep them in their housing. Um, but if you catch a family in time, you don't, if a family's rent is 2000 they might, you, you, sometimes we don't catch them in time. They have two months back rent and all the associated costs of being evicted if they want to stay. So as a business proposition, if you're a business owner, are you going to be able to invest four to $5,000 into a family to keep their housing? Maybe not. Maybe a little bit too much. But what if you caught it early enough? Our average investment to keep a family in a housing here right now through a family assistance fund is $450. Hmm. So what if we caught that early enough and used that $450? So business owners in our community could write checks to that fund is what I'm suggesting. And for $450, you're actually helping a family physically stay in their home. Right. That's the kind of strategy you might want to look at as a business in your community. Like what's available to families and how do I invest in a multi-tier thing for, so for families that have nothing to families that are barely surviving to families that are almost there. Mm-hmm. Every one of those steps needs some type of investment and help. Right. And business owners can jump on the line anywhere in there. It could be money. It could be offering people employment through organizations like ours, looking for qualified people who maybe um, just need a second chance. Right. Or maybe are underemployed or something along those lines. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, so for a business owner, there's a spectrum of things they can do that um, keeps them on the line, making their money. Because if business owners don't make money, if there's no wealth created in our community, there's no poverty alleviation. Sure. I, I think that's, that's, that, that, that's worth saying, though. Right. Tax dollars come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Tax dollars come from taxing wealth. Right. And if there's no wealth to tax, there's no tax dollars, there's no opportunity to actually even create a lot of programs. Mm-hmm. And by the way, is it, do we want to, that's one model, but business owners can invest in another model where more of their dollar goes to meet the need. Mm. So that's, that's what I would say there. Um, that's the spectrum and that's the opportunity businesses might have to engage it. Now there are more than that, obviously. Sure. Those are just a few to illustrate. Mm-hmm. No, I, I love that. And that's one of the things when I got involved with the career stuff is that I saw is a lot of times, you know, when you think, I guess, of the, the quintessential, you know, homeless person, if you will, you know, you think of Skid Row or maybe someone, you know, strung out on drugs. And yes, that's a big problem. And, and, and it's important to address those issues. But a lot of times it is catching people or just help, giving them a helping hand in a time where they are struggling. You know, maybe they lost a job or they're in transition between a job or they had unexpected medical or automotive bills or something, you know, had to replace a furnace, right? Something happened in their life that put them in in dire straits for uh, financially for at least a short period of time. And then being able to reach out to those people, because if you can, as you said, if you can address that issue, you know, before it becomes a major issue, right, if they get evicted, right, that's a whole nother set of problems, you know, then it's hard to get to work. It's hard to shower. It's hard to be presentable and professional. Mm -hmm. Like that may cause massive other issues, health related issues, which then increases doctor bills. Like, but if you can, yeah, say, okay, well, can we just help you stay in your house? Can we help you address, you know, one or two of these things? So you're not paying 20%, you know, annual, um, you know, interest on your credit card. Like, can we address a few of those? Man, there's some amazing opportunities there. Totally. And I would encourage every business to, you know, to, to be in the know about that, that type of work in their community. Because, man, don't we owe it to people to, like, keep them from falling? You know, one of the reasons why you find folks that are chronically homeless in, those, in the conditions that they are, the addiction issues, is the, 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 the stress of being unhoused, mm. of being on the street without having uh, anything stable uh, to, to, put, to count on. That wears a human spirit down. And so people begin to cope. Maybe they do have um, mental health issues that were never un- or diagnosed or they've gone un- unmedicated, but you add all that in, and then it's, it is a perfect series of tragic circumstances that bring people to their lowest place. Hmm. And I think that the point is um, a lot of people don't just manifest those issues, right. and that's why they go homeless. They have those issues because they're homeless. Right. So if we can, it's, it's, it's human compassion to do what we can to keep people from winding up in that same position. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. So in our last five minutes, I guess, anything that you would want to share additionally with our audience or anything maybe I should have asked that I didn't ask? Um, just, I guess, you sort of have the floor if there's anything about Serve 6 8 or about poverty alleviation you'd like to share. Maybe this. Um, Doing the right thing is often the hardest thing. So when, when business owners are, are, are looking at creating a different type of investment in humans and their community that are going to be meaningful, I think the thing to prepare yourself for is the more meaningful it could be, um, the more difficulty you could face. So when we developed our employment ministry here called Talents, um, we were we we did a lot of research, and we were told pretty straightforward by, by folks, this will be the hardest thing you ever did. Mm-hmm. And you think to yourself, well, it seems like it should be the easiest, right? Like here's an opportunity for help people get jobs. But what you're really doing when you're you're holding out something like that, which is a, a, a change in paradigm, not only for the employer, because you're you're looking for good people. And the pressure points for employers are they need people in the market right now that can that actually can productively jump online. Sure. They don't need to get a bunch of folks that are have so many barriers that they actually can't successfully participate. That's cruel to them as well because now you're going to have to let them go. So so but the the the, the point is it's worth building something with all the all the associated difficulty that looks forward and not backward. It says, what is, what's the potential of humans? 
right? How are we going to fix some of the labor shortage issues businesses are facing right now? We're either going to do it one of two ways. We're going to have to like literally take people in, in all kinds of a variety of broken conditions and try to bring them into a place of productivity, or we're going to help invest in people over the long haul, and then we're going to create a different kind of market for, for folks. I think I would say put a lot of thought into, like when I say be holistic in your investing, your time, talent, and your treasure. Think about investing in, in, in programs like that hmm. that change the paradigm, but don't expect radical return on that investment right away. You have to build the capacity for that to happen. And the best way to do that is engage more and more people. So if, you, if, you're, if you're in a community and you want to do something like this, grab as many businesses as you can. Find the right organization that's going to help you achieve the goals that you want to achieve with people. And then put something together and sustain that over the long haul. Don't expect there to be remarkable return right now, but put your money and your talent and your opportunities into that. Sure. And then patiently uh, work it and build it. Hmm. I think I want to say that to folks. This, there's no magic bullet to fix um, all the, the brokenness of our world. Uh, and everything worth doing takes a lot of effort and comes a great sacrifice. Yeah. And I want to reiterate kind of what you said, too, at the end of getting mm-hmm. more people on board. You know, this isn't, uh, you know, I think entrepreneurs, especially because we can be so self-driven, it's like, oh, well, I can just fix this. I can figure out. But a lot of t- but the best way to do it is bringing businesses and churches and community leaders and and so many other people on board. And I think as you alluded to earlier in this discussion, like what you learned about this was that it takes a coalition, mm-hmm. truly, right? And yep. that's messy. And I think a lot of times, especially, you know, um, type A entrepreneurs are like, no, let me just do it. Let me just fix it. But if we're going to fix this in the long run, fix it sustainably, it's going to take a lot of tough conversations with people, a lot of, you know, uh, research and, 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 and really working with people maybe we wouldn't otherwise work with, you know, yes. to be able to, to make this work. And I've seen you take the lead in that in this community as well as um, Serve 6-8 more broadly. And, and that's one thing I really appreciate about the, uh, the organization. Yeah, I th- that's a great point. Uh, and I think, uh, and, and to, to, just to finish that point from my perspective, is entrepreneurs hold more of those answers than they realize. They, I think that they think people want their, um, their money but I tell you, I, I would take a, a, entrepreneur minds on, on, on designing something new any day of the week hmm. because that's what entrepreneurs do. Right. They create. Yeah. From nothing, they create something. Mm-hmm. And that's a gift. And they yeah. can use that gift not only to make money for themselves, but to create opportunities and hope for others. Yeah. Awesome, Mike. Yeah. So if people want to uh, find out more about Serve 6-8, see what you guys are up to in the community, um, connect with you, what's the best way to do that? I would start with our website, serve68.org. Uh, we have quite a bit uh, going on there, and it's uh, we really try to keep that up to date to the season. So if we're in Christmas, you're going to see Christmas opportunities. If it's around summer, you're going to see some other focused things. Um, and if you're in the Fort Collins, Loveland, Greeley area, you can always come by our resource center, which is located in Fort Collins at 1239 East Drake. Road. Uh, we would love to show you around and, and kind of walk you through how we do things, the how, the what, the why, uh, and the space that we do it in. Uh, but check us out online. And then from there, um, you know, you can send us communication if you want to know more. Cool. Mike, thanks a ton for your time. I really appreciate enjoyed you, the conversation. You bet.